many years ago, like college years ago, I um, had an apologetics professor who told me something that I've thought about for ever since then, and I've seen it come to play as I interact with lost people and with Christians even. Um, what he told me was this. He said, there are basically two religions in the world. Only two. <clears throat> there's Hinduism and there's Christianity. And those are really the only two religions. Because almost every religion outside of Christianity is, whether they admit it or not, is based on karma. Like, you get what you deserve. <laughs> whether you're a Muslim or an atheist, or a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or whatever. You kind of live by karma. And you especially rejoice when you see somebody else get it. Don't believe me, just get on the internet and watch a few videos, right? We, we love when John Lennon sang about instant karma's gonna get you. Though we're, of course, never deserving. It's always that other jerk, right, that's deserving of it, right? Um, but that's, that's karma, like there's, there's God, there's gods, there's the force, there's the universe. And when you do good things, gods, the universe, or whatever, is then obligated to do good things in return to you. And when you do bad things, the gods, the universe, God, is obligated to give you a good knock on the head as John Lennon sang. Get yourself together, <laughs> he sang, or soon you're going to be dead. <laughs> and if we're not careful, we can live as Christians like that. We can live by karma instead of by grace, which is a very different thing. Karma puts a certain sort of pressure on you. This sort of linear, transactional, people use the word Christianity, where I do Christian things, and in return, God does God things. And the better I do my Christian things, the bigger and better God will do his God things. And if I get really good and consistent and do the good Christian things pretty well for a consistent amount of time, well, then God has no choice but to just really bless me big. Um, and it really just kind of ends up sounding more like karma than a relationship based upon grace, which is amazing as we sing about and sometimes entirely unexpected, sometimes completely unlooked for and always undeserved. And that's the kicker, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We'd be lost if the universe ran on karma. Um, and so in Ruth, we find a story um, where we have someone simply resting in God for refuge and simply finding favor with God. But we're going to find some language here that can be a little confusing because we're going to hear someone use words like repay. Repay? We get repaid for doing good stuff? How does that work? 
but just want us to start by just kind of hoping that you kind of feel that sense of, yeah, maybe I do live by karma more than I think. Maybe I do kind of have this tit-for-tat relationship with God where, you know what, I didn't have my quiet time this morning, so my day's probably not going to go well because God's just not happy with me. <laughs> right? I missed it two days in a row. My entire week is shot. God can't possibly... God's just waiting around the corner with his foot sticking out <laughs> to trip me up. Um, <laughs> we, need, we don't need that kind of pressure. <laughs> and I think Ruth is going to show us a little bit of that today. There's this kind of this resting, this waiting, this coming to God with nothing. Um, last week we saw that Naomi... Her husband Elimelech and her sons Malon and Kilion had left a famine in Bethlehem and had gone to Moab, which was a very, very distant cousin, but like the cousin at your family reunion who drank too much and started a fight every time, that kind of cousin, like the cousin you didn't admit you were related to. And if you go back through the book of Judges when this takes place, they were fighting constantly. Um, this was not a healthy thing. This was a bad relationship. But when you need to keep your family alive, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So they go to live in Moab where there's food. And while they're there, her husband Elimelech dies. Her sons marry Moabite ladies, and then the sons die. We saw last week Naomi is heading back towards home, hearing that the famine is over. The two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, um, follow her part of the way, and she tells them, please return home. Orpah returns home. Ruth does not, for which we're thankful, because we get the book of, the Ruth, of Ruth instead of the book of Orpah. And so <laughs> Ruth, Naomi can see no way forward because the Lord has been bitter to her, she, she says. The Lord has made my life bitter. He has turned his hand against me. If you go forward, there is nothing for you by going with me. Go back, find another husband, live with your families, have kids. That's where your life is back there. And Ruth says, nope, wherever you're going, I'm going. <laughs> your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Where you die, I'm going to die. And where you get buried, I'm going to be buried. So Ruth has come to believe in Somewhere along the way, instead of the gods of the Moabites, she's come to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they come back to Bethlehem, and there's a stir, it says. Did you hear Naomi's back in town? She's like, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Lord has made my life bitter. Now, there's two little elements at the end of chapter 1, verse 22, and then at the first verse of chapter 2. Chapter 1 ends with the words, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So a bit of, a bit of foreshadowing there. You, you, you come to the end of chapter 1 and you're going, okay, well, 
we've got two widows. You know, that, that doesn't sound much more hopeful than one widow, does it? Like, <laughs> okay, oh, we've got two widows and one of them's a Moabite. That, that sounds a lot better. No, it doesn't really. It sounds more difficult. But the barley harvest is beginning. And then you get to chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And then we go a bunch of verses without Boaz. And, and so we've, we're introducing two little things, elements here. Um, it makes you go, hmm, why did, why did we introduce those? A um, little foreshadowing here. I, I'm just going to tell you, I have a hard time here not kind of, I think about this all the time in Ruth. When I was in third grade, um, we were in a great big room and the, there were two or three classes and we just rotated around this giant room from corner to corner and there was a teacher in every corner who taught us a different subject and there was this Miss Carpenter. And y'all, Miss Carpenter, um, she was as East Tennessee as it got, y'all. And she had great big close to heaven hair, blonde, and she was just this beautiful southern lady. She was Southern Bale as can be. And um, I still remember to this day, I'm still bitter towards her because I was always acing my spelling test, but one week I missed because she threw in a word that we didn't study. She threw in this word, ire. Ire? We did not study the word ire. Ire? She kept saying it. Ire? We didn't study this word. She was saying, oh, you are. Our. But then he stands saying, hey, y'all, that's ours. Get your hands off that. Ain't yours, it's ours. So I missed one that day. But I remember, for, this is an amazing thing to me that I think, that she told us the story of Ruth, that she took two days to tell us the story of Ruth from the Bible. My fourth grade teacher taught us the 23rd Psalm, my 23rd Psalm. My sixth grade teacher taught us John 3, 16 and 17. Um, incredible that they got away with that back in the day. But I'll just never forget that her getting to this part of the story and her saying the name Boaz, and every kid in class just giggling over that name Boaz, and it had three syllables. <laughs> to this day, I will never forget Boaz with three syllables and every kid giggling. That's all I remember. I don't even know what the story was about. <laughs> Nobody probably did except Boaz. Anyway, there you go. That's a complete commercial. That's not the main show. Um, but Boaz, it says, um, it's very interesting in the different translations the NIV says he's a man of standing, um, which isn't bad. It's a difficult little thing here. Just um, the ESV says he's a worthy man. Some people, just, some translations describe a man of great wealth, a wealthy, prominent man, or a worthy man. Um, this word is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as a man of valor or a mighty man. Um, it's it's. It's kind of a, of a of, I love one translation that says he was a man of substance. Right? He was no lightweight. Like, yeah, he had money, but he had character that went along with it. So he was a man of valor. He was a man of honor, but he was a man who had done really well, um, financially speaking, I guess. He was just an admirable man. And he was prominent and had a noble character. And he's a relative. That's a big deal, as we're going to see. But that's all it says. It just introduces him in, in chapter 2, verse 1. 
And then we go back to Naomi's house. It says, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, notice this is a bit of a request, but Ruth is taking some initiative here. Uh, I don't know what things were like in Moab, but in Israel, this is actually written into the law that when you go out and it's harvest time and you reap your harvest, you do two things. You don't reap all the way up to the edges. You leave that for poor people. You leave some of your harvest for the poor. So you, just, you, don't, you don't get every last bit. You leave the edges. And you don't go over your harvest with a fine-tooth comb. You don't like go through and then go back over it again and get everything. No, you, you leave that for the poor people as well. So feeding the poor was built into even harvest time. Even if you forgot a sheaf back in the field, it said in Deuteronomy 24, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, don't even go back and get it. That shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You're saying, wow, an entire sheaf of grain. That's kind of a lot. I could do something with that. He says, no, just leave it there. The Lord will take care of you. Just let the poor people have that. So Ruth is going to go out and see if she can find a field where there's actually some people obeying the law, where she can find, it says, someone in eyes in, whom, in whose eyes I might find favor. I might find grace. It's the same thing where it says right before the Genesis flood, Noah found grace, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you go this word all throughout the Old Testament, it's, constantly people praying to find favor from God or from other people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Psalm 84, 11. Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Proverbs 3, 34. He mocks proud mockers but shows favor to the humble and oppressed. So favor is a very fascinating thing here where it is a gift and a response at the same time. It's never something that's deserved even when it's a response because even the people who receive it go, Thank you, I didn't deserve that. Towards the humble. So when you see, I'm, I'm looking for favor, and then you go back to chapter one, and you see what kind of person she is, you just kind of think to yourself, I bet she finds it. And she does. And Naomi says to her, um, go ahead, my daughter. And so she went out and she entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, it's an interesting little, Translation there. She went out in the lead field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. Ah, that's why he told us about Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, we're getting this story from Ruth's perspective, right? As far as she knows, she had just randomly picked a field. There's a field. There's some people in the field. I'm just going to go pick that field. Just... Pick a spot. She chanced upon a field. 
But we know Proverbs 20, 24. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. <laughs> As it turns out, she's in the field of Boaz, who is an honorable man, and he's a relative. Verse 4 starts with the words, like it's like the camera turns. <laughs> Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. And I love this, how this works. He walks into the field, and he says, he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. A little liturgy, if you will, a little praise kind of thing that goes on. This is the way they greeted each other. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. And then Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters. He looks out and he sees, he sees Ruth. And he asks an interesting question. This question does not work in 2022. Ladies, if you're reading this and going, well, I'm offended. Well, I'm just sorry. But he asks the question, he asks the question, who does that young woman belong to? <laughs> well, in that day, she either belonged to her husband or her dad. It's the way it worked. And he asks the question, who's, who's, whose girl is that? Right? Who's, who's that young woman belong to? And the overseer of the servants says to him, that's, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So apparently when word was spreading about Naomi, hey, did you hear Naomi's back? Naomi's back. She's a widow now. But she brought back a daughter-in-law. She's a Moabite. What? A Moabite came back with her. Right? So there's just all this buzz. People already know before she gets there. He says, yeah, she came and said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. And she came into the field and has remained here from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. <laughs> okay, well, she, it says she has persisted from the moment she got here. She's been on her feet. She took one little break. So Ruth, um, I don't know if you knew this or not. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth is often found at the end of Proverbs because the Jewish people thought that Ruth was the perfect example of the Proverbs 31 woman. She was loyal to the nth degree. She was humble. She, was, she took initiative. She was hardworking. And that's what they're seeing here. So here she's been all day. So Boaz approaches Ruth and he there's obviously a little bit of an age difference here, but he, he addresses her with a term of endowment, my daughter. Listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay hand on you, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. You... Ruth, I just want you, you're, you're, join, the, join the team and you just stay right there with them and whatever you find there, you get. You can have it. And I've told, this says a lot about the culture. Remember, this is judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. I've told the men to leave you alone. Now, what do we have here? We have a Young, single, immigrant female. She's ripe, 
if you will, in that culture, she's set up perfectly to be mistreated. Who's going to defend her? Who's going to defend a young, single immigrant girl? So it must have been common for them to be mistreated. So Boaz says to the men, don't touch her. Right? Ruth is so vulnerable in this situation, in a land... Boaz is looking at Ruth with an entirely different set of eyes, right? In the words of MLK, he's looking at the content of her character and not her nationality. He's looking at her the way the New Testament says older men should look at Look at them like they're your daughter. And it says, um, just feel free to drink, get a drink. Whenever they get water jars, take a break. Take a break. And then look at verse 10. And at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. And she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? How have you taken notice of me? Now, it was her hope when she left Naomi's house. I'm going to go and hope I find favor. She finds favor, and she's just, this is, more than she could have ever bargained for. I think she would have been happy to just go get the gleanings, be left alone, come home with a little bit. But she has been shown favor to the nth degree, above and beyond what she could have ever asked. And she's bowing her face to the ground. Who am I that you're noticing me? And Boaz replies, I've been told about you. I've been told about all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know. You came here as a complete stranger to someone else's land. And then what he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, so much going on here, isn't there? Like, he knows that Ruth is trusting the Lord, not him, because she just showed up in a random field. Like, she didn't leave the house this morning and go, okay, I know there's a guy out there named Boaz, I'm going to find this field. She doesn't know that. He knows her character. He knows what kind of person she is. She knows the Lord is going to reward her. But how does he expect he's going to do that? Does he expect that the Lord is just going to drop stuff out of the sky? No, he expects that the Lord is going to use him to be his hand of blessing. It's going to come through another person. So she's left everything, and he's going to be a blessing to this immigrant. Ruth had sought refuge in the Lord and the Lord had set in motion on the human stage the people who would take care of her because she had, I love this, she had sought refuge under his wings. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's mother bird, little chicks, where else... Are they going to be protected? They're small, they're vulnerable, they're defenseless. Mom's going to take care of them. Refuge, protection, shelter, strength. 
Ruth turned to the Lord for that. The Lord sent Boaz. Psalm 36, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings and they feast on the abundance of your house. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91, 4. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And then she says in verse 13, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Though I do not have the standing, (coughs) excuse me, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants, you have put me at ease. Like, when I left the house this morning, I didn't know what was going to happen. Thank you, Boa. And you're treating me like I belong. You're not treating me like an outsider. You're treating me like I have some sort of standing here, and I don't. You're being kind to me. And at mealtime, it says Boaz came to her and said, hey, come on over here, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down. She's being included. You see this? She's being brought in. She's being included. She's given a place of belonging, and she ate some of the roasted grain, and she had some left over, so she's eating all she can and keeping the leftovers. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. In other words... Accidentally, accidentally drop extra and let her have them. So Ruth, it says, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley that she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. That's about 30 pounds. <laughs> Three-fifths of a bushel, like... This is going to be a lot to carry home. Like she probably would have been expecting way, 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 way less than this. And she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Like, um, Ruth, where'd you get all that? And Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Oh, you, yeah, I've also got leftovers from lunch. This is roasted. Have some. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where'd you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is... Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. 
This man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. We're going to get into the whole idea of guardian, kinsman, redeemer next week. But he's a close relative and he's in line to take care of them, if you will. So Naomi's seeing a lot of potential there. <laughs> and, um, but just look at this line. This is just so beautiful. The Lord has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. In Naomi's mind, God is not only being incredibly kind to them, he's still being kind to her dead husband and her dead sons by taking care of them. Isn't that beautiful? He's still being kind to the living and the dead. He just keeps extending grace. They're being shown kindness. Even it was just last chapter when Naomi said the Lord's hand has turned against me. A blessing and grace and kindness for someone who was completely not expecting it. And it's the nearest relative who can redeem them. Then Ruth the Moabite said, oh, but wait, there's more. He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. And Deuteronomy says, we know this is going to be about seven weeks. For seven weeks, he's just going to keep being kind and gracious like this. For seven weeks, she's going to be seeing him and hanging out with his servants. She's going to become like an insider, if you will. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him. And this, she understands it too, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So she knows what the men there are like. She knows how defenseless Ruth could feel. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So every day, she gets up, goes out to Boaz Field. She gleans what's left there. Do you realize how much they're going to have to go into the winter? She comes back and brings it home to Naomi. Such a beautiful story. And it's going to get better next week. It just keeps so good. So good. I didn't realize until I started studying this how much people who don't even like the Bible love this story. Like this is this is said to be one of the most well-told, beautiful short stories in all of literature. It's beautiful. But 
Let's just think about this for ourselves for a moment. I mean, I know we could rush again to the end, but we're not going to do that yet. It's just there's right here. Is it possible? Is it possible that God will take really, really good care of you even when you're doubting that he will do so? Is it possible that God will just be so gracious and so kind and so generous to you even when you're in a season of just doubting what in the world he's up to, of thinking his hand is against you, of thinking life is bitter? Want to change your name to bitterness. <laughs> that God would be good even when we're doubting his goodness is astounding to me. That's grace. There's no karma in this passage. Like, how determined is God to be good to you? Right? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Paul says in Romans 8. So coming to God for refuge isn't coming to God saying, okay, God, I promise I'm going to do lots of good stuff for you and, and earn all the kindness. It's, it's coming to God and saying, God, um, I got nothing to offer you. I need your help. I need your refuge. I need your protection. I need your provision. The only requirement is the confession of my need. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning, um, but I pray that you'll just give up this whole idea of living up to something and that you'll just kind of lean into the idea of just refuge in God and just casting yourself on the kindness and goodness of God. I'm not sure exactly how this works. I know what the Proverbs says, that a, that a good name is worth more than silver and gold and that a good name will even bless the next generation. And that just blows my mind to think that God could possibly be kind to me today because he's still being kind to my grandfather. <laughs> like how much time does God have to answer my grandfather's prayers? Did my grandfather die? And God said, oh, all those prayers he prayed, those are gone. He's dead now. Can't answer those anymore. <laughs> right now, could it be possible that because of my grandparents' prayers, God is showing kindness to them by just being good to me? Man. And that's, I don't know where your mind is going right now, but maybe it's happening for you too. Man, how determined is he to be good? And just talked about this idea before, but the difference between a snapshot and like the whole movie, like if, if you take a snapshot out of this and go, wow, that's rough. <laughs> they must have done something wrong. Their life stinks, right? No, that's not how it works. Um, this is a story. This is video, not snapshot. Um, so I don't, I don't know what the snapshot of your life is right now. I, I, can't even, I can't even promise that chapter next is going to be the one where Boaz shows up for you and just is totally generous. I, do, I don't know. I don't know that. But I do know 
that if right now you come to God for refuge, if you come to God for shelter, if you come to God for protection and provision, he promises to take care of you. And I know that he's the God of providence and I know that he can arrange things in ways you would have never believed. As a matter of fact, some of you here can go back in time and you can tell a story of how God took care of you in some way, some amazing way, when you weren't expecting it, and it probably all started with, well, you know, I just happened to. <laughs> yeah, I just happened to walk in the field and it belonged to Boaz. Well, I mean, that didn't happen to you, but you know what I'm saying. Right, it was, I just, it seemed like chance, but it was actually God arranging my story. So here we have this, well, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but Ruth turns out to be pretty important and she's mentioned in the New Testament. But we'll talk about the next two weeks. But when you read Isaiah 55 and it says, surely you will summon nations you know not, that's definitely a forward-looking thing of the nations coming, but does God not also give us little glimpses of the nations coming to him? Okay, I won't ruin it, but it's pretty cool, right? Can I pray for you? Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, um, God, nobody walked in this morning with perfectly assured faith. We all came in with, with our doubts and our questions and and yet we came to one this morning and we sang songs about one who gives amazing grace one who gives, who is our very heir and daily bread. Lord, um, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that you'd help us right in this moment to find refuge under the shadow of your wings and to be content right there. And Lord, I don't, I don't know who in this room is a first-generation believer. I don't know who in this room who's a fourth-generation believer. And I don't, I don't know how you work out this, <laughs> this out. But um, I know I'm thankful for the people who prayed for me and the people before me who, who walked with you. Lord, um, I pray that in... The, the coming days, God, those who, who may be struggling today, and just all of us, all of us, God, would just truly believe you're determined to do us good, God. And I, I just pray for us as a, as a church body. Lord, um, you know what the last month has been like for us and some of the difficulties we've faced and are facing. Um, We, we have to know that you're determined to do us good. And we don't, we, we can't lay claim to what your best is going to look like for us. But we know you're determined to be kind to us. And that your grace is amazing. And um, I know that when we, we get anxious and we worry about the future, we start thinking about the ways that we could help you answer prayer and we start giving you advice 
on how you ought to do things. Um, but I wouldn't put it past you to surprise us in some really amazing ways because you're just that determined to be good to us. Um, so we just want to, as a church, come to you for refuge now, God. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and um, the incredible opportunity and pleasure of worshiping with them today. In Christ's name. Thank you.